Good morning, all. We are blessed to live in a community of learning. I love to learn. I hope that you're here because you love to experience God, uh, interact with his word and with other mature believers with an expectation that the word of God will touch us in a special way. I think one of life's great pleasures is intellection, the joy of learning. When we encounter something we didn't know before, it's more than the accumulation of new information. It's an opportunity to be changed and transformed. It's the exciting part of learning. It's an open door to opportunity for what God has for us to become. Learning is truly transformative, and we're living in transformational times, are we not? Speaking to a colleague last week, we were saying, uh, if you ever wanted to change something big in your life, like if you ever wanted to change higher education, or you wanted to change the, the, the church, or you wanted to even see the world change, you really had your work cut out for you, right? That was a big task. Well, no worries. Uh, this year we have seen so much change, you don't need to do anything. We, this year we have become so radically changed in so many ways. I feel as though sometimes we are sorting through the debris following a hurricane. And we're trying to find those things most sacred and valuable to us. To see if they're still intact beneath the rubble. But what comes in this season of phenomenal change is an opportunity to rebuild. Are you tracking with me in this message? Tremendous change, but an opportunity to rebuild. A husband and wife stood in front of, uh, in their front yard after a tornado had blown through their neighborhood. Their beautiful home, ravaged by the storm, reduced to sticks and bricks scattered across the front yard. The husband turns to the wife and says, Honey, you know that remodel you've always wanted? I think you may just get it. Jesus talks about building. He says this, A wise man builds his house upon the rock, and a foolish man builds his house upon the sand. What's the difference? Jesus speaking, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. I've chosen a passage of scripture this morning that I hope that we will respond to wisely. I hope we will put into practice the words of Jesus. And I've entitled this message this morning, What Does Jesus Pray For? What does Jesus pray for? The scene is the Passover meal. The night before Jesus is to be crucified. Jesus has already washed the feet of the disciples. Can you imagine if Jesus were to wash your feet? How you would feel? He's already offered and served the bread and the cup. He has given last instructions to his disciples. But before the Passover meal is complete, Jesus prays. And I want you to listen to what Jesus prays to the closest friends he had on earth. From John's Gospel 17. Father, Jesus prays, just as 
you are in me and I am in them, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave to me that they may be one as we are one. In I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity, following a theme here. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying for believers. He's praying for you and I and his prayer is this, that they may be one as he and the Father are one, brought to complete unity. The biblical imperative to unity in the church, particularly as it relates to ethnicity and culture, is a message the global 21st century church needs to hear. It's right where we live now. It's time. The time is ripe. We need a remodel in our thinking, drawn up from a biblical blueprint, a biblical foundation. A house wisely built on the rock means putting into practice the words of Jesus Christ. Are you tracking with me this morning? This past weekend, I was invited to speak to a group of Christians in Hibacha Pradesh in northern India. Whoever thought you could do that from Wilmore, Kentucky without ever going through airport security? It's possible. In order to speak to the Sunday morning worship in northern India, you need to be ready to preach at midnight. I am not a night owl. <laughs> But as the faces began to appear on the screen, strangers, that's the word for them, people you've never met in a country you've never been, that you have no relationship with, as the faces of strangers appeared on Zoom, Christians from many different countries, Singapore, Kuwait, Paraguay, the United States, and 10 states within the subcontinent of India, you start to recognize in a picture on your screen the scope and the breadth of the church. And it changes your view of what the church is all about. Because we all have impressions of what the word church means. Maybe it was the small church you grew up with. Maybe it was a huge church you were a part of that did ministry that just was extraordinary. Maybe the church for you is meets in your home and there's just a few of you, but you love the Lord and you partake in Eucharist and you serve. We're so different as people. It's extraordinary. A poet named uh, Maya Angelou wrote of this different, about our differences and about how no two people are the same. The church is very different, but if you think about it, even individuals in this room, there's no two of us that are the same. The church is very different. The church has always been different. From its founding, it's, there's been diversity in the church. This is what the poet Maya Angelou wrote. She said, it's a paraphrase by the way, if you sail across the ocean and you stop in every land, you will see great wonders but find no common man. I know 10,000 women called Jane and Mary Jane, but I've not seen any two who really were the same. Each ocean is quite different, although each has a tide, and friends can think quite different thoughts while sitting side by side. 
The variety of our skin tones can confuse, bemuse, delight, brown and pink and beige and purple, tan and blue and white. I note the obvious differences between each sort and type, but we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. Some of us are unusual. Some of us are plain. In minor ways, we're different, but in Christ, we're all the same. I live in a unique community. It's called Callus Villages. There's nothing like Callus Villages, I'm sure, anywhere else on the face of the earth. Can you just imagine it? Every house has Christians. Every house has at least one graduate student living inside. And then countries from around the globe are living there. And so when I look out my window, I see children playing, following my son, because he gave them popsicles the day before. <laughs> he has the heart of a pastor. And I look out and I see the children from the continent of Africa and from the continent of Europe and from Asia and India, and they're all so different. There's no two are the same. And then I remember Jesus' prayer that they would be one as he and the Father were one. Jesus said, I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Every sermon should have a problem. This one has one. The church isn't in complete unity, and that's a problem. The church isn't unified, and paraphrasing uh, one of my favorite theologians, uh, Miroslav Volf, our differences aren't the reason why we aren't unified. Differences are healthy. Differences give us our identity. You are who you are because of your differences from other people. If we, if we took all our differences away and, I, and we said, let's all be the same person, then there won't be these differences of opinion, different ways of seeing things, different maturity levels and tastes and dislikes. We'll put away all of that. We'll tear down the boundaries around us and let us all flood together into some kind of soup. We wouldn't have a very interesting world and we wouldn't have any of us. Our, in, our differences give us our, our, our identity, and our differences in the church give the church its strength. Quoting Wolf, disunity occurs, and this is the problem, when we take a person because of their differences and we push them outside of our sphere of care. We have some that we care about and some that we do not. We have some that we embrace and pull close and some that we exclude and push away. Some who are very valuable to us and some that we would deem as less valuable to us. And each one of us has that same propensity to create a hierarchy, a social status ranking for who is important in our world and who is not important in our world. And in a sinful fallen world that makes perfect sense. It's in the church that that does not make one bit of sense. Can anyone explain to me how we got here? In a world where, where Jesus is praying that we, on the night before his crucifixion, after washing the feet of the disciples, he is praying for unity with us, that we may be as one as he and the Father are one. 
F.F. F. Brutes uh, writes it this way. The unity that Jesus is praying about. You want a definition. What does that mean, unity? Such a vague term sometimes. Semantics. F.F. F. Bruce says this. The unity for which Jesus prays is a unity of love. It is, in fact, the disciples' participation in the unity of love which subsists entirely between the Father and the Son. What Jesus has with the Father, he wants for you and me in our times today. When I was a pastor in New York, a man who later became a friend, his name is Michael, and uh, he came to our, our church plant and he uh, heard the gospel, he came to faith and a short time after that his dear sweet mother passed away and so Michael asked if the, we could host the funeral in our, our small chapel and, and if I would give the eulogy and of course I said yes. And uh, because the area where we planted nine out of ten people aren't Christians, I anticipated that it, there was a likelihood that when Michael, who had just come to faith, came to church for the funeral, that he would invite his friends and family, and many of them would have never been to church or heard the gospel. And as a faithful pastor, I wanted to prepare a gospel message. I wanted to be sensitive to the family and caring which is the kingdom ethic, but I also wanted to share the gospel, and so I, pr I prayed and I prepared. And during that eulogy, as the uh, small chapel was overcrowded with mourners and family members and close friends, I told them the gospel, that God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whomsoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I preached the gospel, and then I went down and sat in the pew because Michael had asked if it would be okay if others would come up following the eulogy and they could share some stories about his mother. I said, that would be wonderful. Have you ever had one of those occasions when you were the expert in the room, when you were the teacher, and suddenly you realize that things are shifting and you've suddenly become the student in the room? The first person to stand up for my... Uh, friend Michael's uh, mother's funeral, and I should mention that Michael's what you might want to call uh, an expression we have in this country, a, a nation, a country boy, okay? He's going to be in jeans pretty much if he's conscious. Uh, he's going to wear the plaid shirt. He drives the pickup truck. Um, he's honest, salt-of-the-earth fellow, but very much um, a country boy in a lot of ways. And so when I sat down in the pew following the eulogy, um, I was a little surprised that the first person that stood up was this strong, middle-aged black woman who was muscular and tough. And she stepped into the pulpit um, in uh, uh, the Albany, New York area. She stepped into the pulpit and she said this, Michael, your mother and I lived next door to each other in Schenectady, New York. We were both single moms. And we knew if we were going to make it, we needed to depend on each other. So sometimes when your mother had to be away at work or for something else, I watched you. And when I in turn had to be away for something else, your mother watched my son. And you know, Michael, if you stepped out of line, you were going to get a whooping. 
and I look over at Michael, the country boy, with the pickup truck and the dog who just stepped out of a country western song, and I'm looking at this, and I see the tears rolling down his face and his head nodding like this, which gave me the impression that he knew what a whooping was from experience. She said, Michael, your mother is gone now, but I want you to know something. You're not too big that if I see you step out of line, I'm going to come find you, and you're going to get a whooping. She sat down. I said, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Schenectady, New York. New York's a tough place. Two single moms. Schenectady, New York. The next person who stood up was a man in his early 30s, another, a black man. He was wearing a suit. He was like a movie star, his complexion, his face. He looked like he just walked out of the movies. He looked like he just stepped off the cover of GQ magazine. And he walks up to the front and he says, Michael, you and I grew up next door to each other. We grew up as brothers. And like brothers, we played and then we fought. And then we made up and then we played and then we fought again. But everybody in the neighborhood knew it was okay for me to mess with you. But if they messed with you, they had to mess with me. And nothing's changed. If anyone messes with you, they have to mess with me. And I sat there absolutely stunned. The expert in the gospel, the, 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 the divinity student, the, the person with all the words who preached the gospel, the most glorious message the world will ever hear. And now I'm hearing from two families living in a rough part of New York, a single, two single moms, one white, one black, raising sons on their own and adopting each other uh, uh, embracing each other and drawing each other into their lives and figuring out the problem that has been plaguing this country for 400 years. If we want to see things get done in this country, perhaps we need two single moms, one black, one white, raising single children, in, uh, raising boys in Schenectady, New York, and then we'll see change in this country because they've figured out the answer to one of the nation's most perplexing problems. According to J. Ramsey Michaels, being brought to complete unity, the subject matter of Jesus' prayer, means Jesus' disciples having the love of God brought to realization in their love for one another. Are these instructions um, simple enough for us to grasp? Challenging to put into practice, but simple enough to grasp. Um, Jürgen Moltmann says this, the sufferings of Christ on the cross are not just his sufferings, they are the sufferings of the poor and weak in which Jesus shares his own body and his own soul in solidarity with them. Jesus is going to the cross. Paul speaks to us about the message of the cross. What is the message of the cross? Christ's love for us, God's giving of his son, the suffering that he goes through. Maltman says this, the theme of divine solidarity as God suffers with victims 
protects them and gives them rights of which they have been deprived, he argues, is what we should be doing as well. How can we have unity in the church when we have more than one church? We have our arms extended out with some that we embrace and some that we exclude. Like many Americans this spring, I listened to the voice of black Americans and black friends from other countries trying to make sense of how our world had been flipped upside down in so many ways. Some of the people I listened to were friends I knew and loved. Some are Christian brothers and sisters, and some were strangers I listened to on my computer screen. And as I listened, I heard these voices saying something, and if I don't get this message exactly right, would you extend some grace? I just want to reflect back to you what I heard. What I heard in the voices of black Americans and other people of color is that they want acceptance in the world. They want uh, 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 they want to live, live in a world that is fair and free from prejudicial treatment, not only in the area of loss, law enforcement, but in all spheres of life. They want acceptance and not rejection. They want to be an insider included and embraced by the majority of people in their world and not be treated as an outsider, someone that we hardly acknowledge. They want to be embraced by the people of the church, which is what Jesus prayed for, rather than be excluded. And I couldn't help but think of Paul from 1 Corinthians who said this, we were all baptized, not just American Christians, not just Nigerian or Paraguay or Singapore or Northern India, and I can mention country after country after country after country. We were all baptized by one Holy Spirit. How many Holy Spirits? One. One Holy Spirit. And so we are formed into one body. Are we following this? You are the body of Christ. Not just you. Every believer across the globe it is not just a local church anymore. It's a global church. And we are brothers and sisters meant to pull close those who are different from us, not asking them to become just like us. We don't want that. But to care and embrace nonetheless. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. Jesus prayed for unity. Have you ever stood outside on a clear night and looked up at the stars, bright lights shining in the distance? One summer I worked in Montana. Montana has lots of wilderness. The land is mountainous. There are villages far, far apart. Sometimes when you enter the village, the population is 12 people. You say, are you for real? You made a sign for 12? Do you have chalkboard maybe? That could change daily. At night... The land becomes very, very dark and mysterious and ancient. And if you look up at the sky, the stars become particularly bright. The sky brightens with the light of a billion stars. And when I see those stars, I can't help but remember God's promise to Abraham from Genesis. 
God told Abraham, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Yes, indeed, it is that. Paul says, then you will shine out among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Like stars in the sky, like the stars that God pointed out to Abraham and said, so shall your offspring be. Bright lights shining against an inky black, uh, backdrop of a depraved generation. Christian apologist Andy Bannister writes, just as the constellation of millions of stars through the centuries gave light to the earth, the example of millions of believers in Jesus over the centuries and today share the light of Jesus against the inky, dark backdrop of a fallen and confused world. Last closing point. Jesus said, pray for unity so that, they, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. It's a witness to the world. When we embrace one another, watch. Just as that Zoom conversation on Sunday morning at 12.05 a.m. With, with, with Christians just like us because they're different but they have the same spirit inside, and we embrace each other and draw close. Just like callous villages, where we have um, the world represented in one neighborhood, and our children play together, and we're forever borrowing each other's paprika and curry. Just like that. Just like Asbury, where our classrooms and our campus and our dining halls and our residences, residential quarters are filled with people from other nations. Are we really weakened if we just have some monolithic version of the church? Or is Jesus uh, giving us a mandate to dream, to dream bigger, to see, uh, as, as, uh, as Maltman said, that theology is the imagination poured into what the kingdom looks like in the world and what the world looks like in the kingdom. This is a picture of what the world can be in Christendom. Different people who embrace one another. I want to close in prayer with a, verse, a scripture from 1 Peter. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other. Apostle Peter, love one another deeply from the heart. You know how to do that, don't you? You've loved someone before, haven't you? Have you ever loved someone? You ever prayed in the hospital for someone that's ill? Have you ever waited in an ER with a child who is sick and very uncomfortable? And you worry and you pray and you do everything in your power as a parent? Have you ever loved someone? I'm, I really want to know. 
you haven't met someone special that you didn't know one, at one point and then you did meet them and you don't know how you ever got along before this person, God has brought to you a blessing, another human being who gets you. They understand you. They become sacred and precious to you. And you hold them close because you love them. And God loves the son. And the son loves the, the followers that God gave to them. And then Jesus prays for unity, that we would love one another in complete, finished, nothing more to be done, community of love. Let's pray. Father Jesus, we love you, almighty God. We love your word. We feel challenged sometimes to put it into practice. We, we, we don't know how sometimes, but we understand what you've said. To draw us close to you, to die on a cross, and to ask us to embrace those who are different from us, but the same because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, would you give us the courage to either make that change today or to say, I'm ready to start to pray that God would change my heart so that we may show the world through our unity that truly Jesus came from God the Father. Amen.